Welcome to the final installment of the Convivial Society for 2020. This time around, I'm turning to the work of Marshall McLuhan in order to explore what I've called the disorders of our collective consciousness. I hope you enjoy it, or at least find it useful. And for those listening on a podcast app, remember that there is more to the newsletter than the main essay of which this is the audio version. Thank you, as always, for listening and for reading. And of course, a happy new year to you. The Disorders of Our Collective Consciousness Consider the following words spoken by a character in Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1851 novel, The House of Seven Gables. Then there is electricity, the demon, the angel, the mighty physical power, the all-pervading intelligence. Is it a fact, or have I dreamt it, that by means of electricity, the world of matter has become a great nerve, vibrating thousands of miles in a breathless point of time. Rather, the round globe is a vast head, a brain, instinct with intelligence. Or shall we say, it is itself a thought, nothing but a thought, and no longer the substance which we deemed it. A bit overwrought, perhaps, but it expresses something of the wonder, dread, and exhilaration which attended the growing understanding of electricity in the mid-19th. Roughly the same historical context had already yielded Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with its imaginative debt to galvanism, the late 18th century fascination with the relationship between electricity and biological life. Hawthorne's language in this passage calls to my mind the way a century later Marshall McLuhan would talk about electronic forms of communication. With the arrival of electric technology, McLuhan wrote in Understanding Media, man extended or set outside himself a live model of the central nervous system itself. I would guess that this is the kind of claim that makes McLuhan seem a bit too esoteric or even a little bizarre to some readers. But if we sit with it for just a moment, I think we'll find it both fairly straightforward and also illuminating. The relationship between networks of electronic communication and the nervous system, which also communicates via electrical impulses, seems obvious enough, of course. McLuhan is suggesting that the networks of electronic communication extend the functions of the biological nervous system beyond the physical limits of the body. So let's take a look at a handful of places where McLuhan leans on the concept of electronic communication as an extension of the nervous system and see where this might lead us. Bear in mind that McLuhan is writing in the 1960s, and these observations predate the advent of the internet as we know it. McLuhan has radio and television chiefly in mind, with the telegraph as a distant predecessor. He is, however, already thinking about how the computer will affect these networks of electronic media. So here is McLuhan explaining the analogy a bit further. It is a principal aspect of the electric age that it establishes a global network that has much of the character of our central nervous system. Our central nervous system is not merely an electric network, but it constitutes a single unified field of experience. In other words, global networks of electronic media augment our field of experience. 
whereas the field of experience constituted by our biological nervous system was anchored to the body's location in space and time, electronic media, as an extension of the nervous system, generates a field of experience that is potentially global in scope. Emphasizing the speed of electronic networks of communication, McLuhan noted that when information moves at the speed of signals in the central nervous system, man is confronted with the obsolescence of all earlier forms of acceleration, such as road and rail. What emerges is a total field of inclusive awareness. The old patterns of psychic and social adjustment become irrelevant. The notion of a field of inclusive awareness, or a unified field of experience, is more or less the same dynamic geographer Yi Fu Tuan noted when he made the following observation, which I cited a few weeks ago in another newsletter. In the past, Yi Fu Tuan noted, news that reached me from afar was old news. Now, with instantaneous transmission, all news is contemporary. I live in the present, surrounded by present time. Whereas, not so long ago, the present where I am was an island surrounded by the pasts that deepened with distance. Contrary to how he is sometimes misread, McLuhan was not exactly sanguine about the state of affairs. To put one's nerves outside and one's physical organs inside the nervous system or the brain, McLuhan argued, is to initiate a situation of dread. But McLuhan was deeply interested in understanding rather than deriding the psychic consequences of these transformations occasioned by new technologies. Note how he tells us in the paragraph I cited above that the old patterns of psychic and social adjustment become irrelevant. There are two important parts to this claim. First, the distinction between psychic and social, and second, the idea that patterns of adjustment have become irrelevant. Regarding the latter, I take him to mean that whatever means of organizing and coping with information, stimuli, perceptions, etc., we deployed in the old age of pre-electronic media were now no longer up to the task. Regarding the former, the distinction is a common one. We are accustomed to distinguishing between the individual and society. But I think McLuhan is also implying that we can speak of a social or collective consciousness in the same way that we might speak of a person's consciousness, and that, along similar lines, we can speak about disorders of the corporate psyche in the same way that we might speak about disorders of the individual psyche. I find it helpful to think along these lines by taking memory as a case in point. Clearly, we have our personal memories, and certainly even these memories have a social dimension. When we gather with old friends or family members, we might mutually spur each other to recollection of shared events that no one member of the group would have arrived at on their own. But I think it is meaningful to also speak about how societies remember, to borrow the title of Paul Connerton's book on the same theme. A society's memory is not merely the sum total of all the memories of the individuals that make up that society. In fact, in certain respects, it may be said to exist independently of individuals. It is true that such memories are not always subjectively realized in human consciousness, but they do not, for that reason, cease to affect the social body. We might even speak of such memories as suppressed or repressed, and in this way also potentially traumatic. Naturally, we do not look for these memories in structures of individual consciousness, rather in the material structures of a society. 
the layout of its cities, its architecture, its allocation of resources, its place names, etc. So for example, the layout of a city may continue to reflect decisions made decades earlier with overtly racist intent. Whether or not any individuals consciously remember such decisions, the material substrate carries the memory, as it were, just as the body often carries memories the mind has forgotten. And such memories continue to work themselves out in the life of the city, whether a critical mass of the city's populace becomes consciously aware of them or not. In this way, we might even speak of them as traumatic memories. Only when they are brought to conscious awareness is there any hope of escaping their disordering consequences. But awareness is, I think, a double-edged sword. At least we might say that awareness can, in its own way, become paralyzing for both individuals and society. So if we allow for the usefulness of the concept of collective consciousness, we can entertain the idea that the consequences of the internet, for example, are felt not only privately, but also collectively. This may seem like a banal observation, and maybe it is. Of course the internet has collective and social consequences. It seems that we have been doing little else than talking about such consequences for the last several years. But I mean to especially emphasize the consequences felt at the level of the social psyche. As I put it a few months ago, I don't think we take seriously enough the idea that the internet functions as a kind of collective unconscious, which is generating a form of collective madness. Perhaps madness is not the best word, although, I don't know, it seems like a credible case can be made on certain days. But let's return to a few more of the comments McLuhan made before working our way to some kind of conclusion. In the electric age, McLuhan observed, when our central nervous system is technologically extended to the whole of mankind and to incorporate the whole of mankind in us, we necessarily participate in depth in the consequences of our every action. It is no longer possible, he added, to adopt the aloof and dissociated role of the literate Westerner. Both the idea of participation in depth and that of a novel interest in the consequences of our action as a result of electronic media are recurring themes in McLuhan's work. I think they make more sense when we try to imagine what instantaneous exposure to national and world events would have seemed like to people who had ordinarily only encountered such events through write-ups in a newspaper. McLuhan, I should note, was born in 1911 in Edmonton, Alberta. It's easy to forget the wonder of seeing events transpiring live from across the globe when most of us have only known a world in which this was a commonplace experience. In other words, I don't think we are well positioned to comprehend what it would have been like to suddenly feel as if the world were collapsing in on you because electronic media had now dramatically extended the reach of your perceptive apparatus. Of course, if you happen to be around 40 years of age, give or take a few years, you might be rather well positioned to comprehend how digital media built upon and augmented these developments chiefly by allowing us to carry our extended nervous system around with us at all times. But there are important differences, of course. The age of pre-digital electronic media was also the age of mass, non-participatory media. Whereas electronic media in the pre-digital age generated a more or less passive experience of rather uniform streams of information, Digital tools have wildly diversified our feeds and enabled us to generate a meta-level of self-aware discourse to overlay the field of unified experience that electronic media generated. 
Digital media has also generated massive and readily accessible databases of memory, which feed back into the layer of self-aware discourse. Indeed, in a metaphorical sense, we might say that if electronic media constituted an extension of the nervous system, digital media has extended memory and speech. Together, these three have generated a simulacrum of collective consciousness. Seen in this light, we have become mad indeed, talking endlessly to ourselves and increasingly trapped within our own words, unable to rightly perceive the world around us and much less act effectively in it. Consider too McLuhan's claim that it is no longer possible to adopt an aloof or dissociated stance toward our experience. McLuhan seems to have in mind the way that electronic media involves one affectively in the events they transmit. We might, for example, note, as McLuhan did, how television coverage of the war in Vietnam transformed the American experience of war. American society felt the war in a different sense than it had any previous war. But digital media does more to erode the ideals of disinterestedness, objectivity, and neutrality. It diversified the mass media feed that had previously generated a false sense of national consensus. Its expansive and searchable archives threw light on every inconsistency and all hypocrisy which sustained the myth of disinterested neutrality on the part of experts, leaders, and institutions. It was observed frequently in the late 20th century that television especially made the aura of detached formal dignity attending public figures and the respect it ostensibly commanded implausible. It did so by collapsing the distance between public figures and the masses, which was the prerequisite of such an aura. It rewarded more approachable, visually charismatic, and informal presentations of the self. Digital media has had an even more profound effect, which will become all the more evident once the light of the electric age is altogether extinguished. McLuhan, I'll note in passing, also understood the dynamics of the so-called attention economy long before the term was coined. Once we have surrendered our senses and nervous system, he warned, to the private manipulations of those who would try to benefit from taking a lease on our eyes and ears and nerves, we don't really have any rights left. Leasing our eyes and ears and nerves to commercial interests, he added, is like handing over the common speech to a private corporation, or like giving the Earth's atmosphere to a company as a monopoly. In other words, we do not own our extended nervous system, nor our external memories or our augmented voices. And this only heightens the disorders of our collective consciousness. It generates a kind of paranoia about what we perceive, which in the meta-discourse of our collective mind takes the form of endless debates about tech platforms, free speech, deep fakes, filter bubbles, etc. McLuhan also argued that the act of extending one's capabilities is simultaneously an act of auto-imputation. With the arrival of electric technology, McLuhan wrote, man extended or set outside himself a live model of the central nervous system itself. To the degree that this is so, he continued, it is a development that suggests a desperate and suicidal auto-amputation, as if the central nervous system could no longer depend on the physical organs to be a protective buffer against the slings and arrows of outrageous mechanism. Further on, he claimed that the principle of self-amputation as an immediate relief of strain on the central nervous system applies very readily to the origin of the media of communication from speech to computer. Each new technology seeks to relieve the stresses induced by the earlier medium. 
but then serves only to create a more desperate situation requiring a further extension and subsequent acceleration. This dynamic seems self-evident at this point. Just make note of all the ways we turn to new technologies and techniques in order to compensate for the consequences of existing technologies. McLuhan is here anticipating, in rather more esoteric terms, a crucial element of Harmut Rosa's more recent theory of social acceleration, in which he describes a feedback loop whereby technical acceleration achieved by both new techniques and new technologies leads to the acceleration of social change and the acceleration of the pace of life, which then calls forth further technical acceleration. Interestingly, McLuhan also claims that self-amputation forbids self-recognition. But I'm not sure this is quite right, at least not any longer. As McLuhan himself explained, we are, as of the mid-20th century at least, increasingly aware of the consequences of new technology. Today, it is the instant speed of electric information he observed that for the first time permits easy recognition of the patterns and the formal contours of change and development. The entire world, past and present, now reveals itself to us like a growing plant in an enormously accelerated movie. And so, we may perhaps be able to recognize the self-amputation of our perceptive apparatus. This possibility recalled, not surprisingly, something that Ivan Illich wrote in a talk honoring Jacques Ellul, noting along the way the degree to which we had taken leave of our senses. Not our wits, but our more literal senses, sight, touch, smell, hearing, taste. Notice the McLuhan-esque phrasing when he observes that existence in a society that has become a system finds the senses useless precisely because of the very instruments designed for their extension. One is prevented from touching and embracing reality. Further, one is programmed for interactive communication. One's whole being is sucked into the system. It is this radical subversion of sensation that humiliates and then replaces perception. But here was the cure, as far as Illich could see it, and with which I will leave you this time around. It appears to me, Illich wrote, that we cannot neglect the disciplined recovery and asceticism of a sensual praxis in a society of technogenic mirages. This reclaiming of the senses, this promptitude to obey experience, the chaste look that the rule of St. Benedict opposes to Cupidati's ocularum, the lust of the eyes, seems to me to be the fundamental condition for renouncing that technique which sets up a definitive obstacle to friendship.